0: Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 27 to 37. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? This is the reading of God's word.
1: Thank you, Andrew, for reading the scripture today. It's good to see everybody here. Um, Am I knocking something? Is that... Anyways, okay, so we'll see how this works. If you've been following us in the past few weeks, what we've been looking at and what we, where we started was what we call the Great Commission. In Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus gives the apostles and the first church things that the church is supposed to do. And so we're looking at the church. And, um, and part of the reason we're doing this is so that we are reminded not only what a church is supposed to be ultimately focused on, at least initially, the basics, right? First, before we move on to anything else, but also, if you're looking for a church, if you're new to a church, if you haven't been to a church in a while and um, you are searching for a church, here are some of the things that I think that the Bible is clear to me that you should be looking for. And one of the things, or three things there that we saw in the Great Commission, that is, uh, God, Jesus says to the disciples, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything. So you got three things there, what we said, right? You got teaching them everything, that's from the Word of God. You got baptism and later on communion, which we call the sacraments. And then we have the third thing, he says, make disciples, make disciples. And in the past week, we looked at what or how or why the Word, teaching them, and the sacrament, baptism, and communion are so important to us today. We said last week that it's one of the ways now that the church and that you and I fellowship, not just with each other, but we fellowship with this God today through his word and through the baptism uh, or the sacrament of baptism and communion. And so what I'm going to do now is look at this third topic. And it's a little more, I think, involved. And I think I'll probably spend a couple of weeks. Next week is actually Mother's Day. And so we'll probably take a little break from this and uh, talk about moms. But we want to look at what Jesus means when he says, here, I want you to make disciples of all the nations. And in order to know what a disciple is, that's, that's where we need to go to Scripture. What exactly is a disciple today? We don't use that language, right, as much as we do. And here in our passage, it's a famous passage. I've seen this and I've visited this many times. Mark chapter 8, I think Jesus gives us a picture of what he expects from what he calls his disciples. His disciples, okay? And, and basically what we have here is this. Mark chapter 8, there are 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark. So this is in the middle, and there are a lot of first times that we see here in chapter eight, things that Jesus could have said and gotten out of the way in chapter one, but he waits, he takes his time, right? He's got a bunch of people following him for whatever reason, and now for the first time, halfway through the Gospel of Mark, for the first time, he asked the people, who do people say that I am? Verse 27. And then for the first time, right, uh... It sounds like, verse 29, Peter and the disciples actually get the answer right. You ever look at the Gospels and you read about the, the apostles or, or the disciples? They never get anything right. They're always making mistakes. They're always saying the wrong thing. But here's a first instance in the Gospel of Mark where we see Peter answering Jesus' question the right way. Who do you say that I am, Peter? And Peter, on behalf of the disciples, say for the first time, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. And right after that confession, for the first time again, Jesus actually tells not just the disciples, but the crowd of people listening to him, all right, if you say this is who I am, this is what it takes to be a disciple. This is what it takes. Now, it's interesting, right? It's, it's halfway through the Gospel of Mark. People have already been following him for whatever reason, but he never tells them, oh, this is what I'm expecting from you. Okay. It never tells him until now, after this confession. Peter says, you are the Christ. He says, okay. Now this is what it takes. And in verse 34, he called to him the crowd and his disciples, and he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Three things I want us to see here very carefully, and that is this. Three Cs, okay, to kind of remember this. We see a confession. Second C, we see a call. And third C is we see a commitment. A confession, there's a call, and there's a commitment. Right, so let's look at the confession. We just kind of already explained it. It happens pretty late, halfway through the Gospel of Mark. Peter makes a confession. Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. He finally gets it right. He finally gets it right. The disciples get it right. Who am I, Jesus, or who am I, you know, Peter? Who do you say I am? You are the Christ. What does that word Christ mean? Literally, it means anointed one. So when he says, you're the Christ, he's saying, you're the Messiah, right? You are the Savior of Israel. You're the Savior of the people of God. He gets it right. It sounds like he gets it right. But for an interesting thing is, in verse 30, right after that, Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. And you have to ask the question, why? I mean, you would think if Jesus wanted everyone to know that he is the Messiah, the Christ, why does he say to Peter, don't tell anyone? And the reason is because even though they get the confession right, I think Jesus is worried that they have a wrong idea of of what a Savior is. Jesus is worried that the disciples, and in fact many Jews, uh, considered salvation as liberation from Roman oppression, right? A political salvation, right? And Jesus will not allow political notions of Messiahship to compromise his true mission, It's bigger than just freedom from political oppression. And the second thing is this. When people thought of messiahs, when people thought of anointed people, when people thought of saviors, those kind of people, right, don't succeed in their mission by dying. Those kind of people in the eyes of people, I mean, if you thought this person was a hero, a rescuer, you don't expect this guy to do what he's going to do by losing You don't expect him to win by losing. And yet right after verse 30, after the confession, Jesus starts to tell them and teach them he's going to die. He's going to be raised again, and so on and so forth. So he says, don't tell anyone, because I don't want people to get confused of who I'm really about, what I'm really about. So the disciples make a confession. You are the Christ. I think they're starting to get it, but I think they're not all there yet. I think they know, but they still didn't know, you know? Right, you know it's like uh, you know uh, you're going to get married, and and uh, you know as the uh, the presider of the wedding says to you, "I now declare you husband and wife." You know now you are a husband or now you're a wife. You know that that's the relationship and that's a fact. But you have no idea what that's going to take. Living like a husband or a wife years and years later, you have no idea. We have no idea. We say, yeah, I'm going to get married. I'm going to be a husband or wife. I know that's true. I confess. This is my wife. This is my husband. And yet you have no idea what that's going to be like later on in life until you go through it. Maybe you want to have kids one day or you have kids. Remember in the beginning, yeah, I'm going to be a parent. My wife's pregnant. She's pregnant. I'm a dad. She's a mom. That's absolutely true. You made a confession. That relationship is there. But the baby hasn't come out yet. We have no idea what it's going to take to raise a new life. So we know, but at the same time, we don't know. And the disciples say, you're the Christ. We make the confession. They know. but I think they have no idea what it would mean to actually follow him. Right? Jesus asked this big question. Who do you say I am, and I think we need to ask ourselves this question today: whether you're a Christian or not, uh, whether you've been going to church for a long time or not. The real question, I think, the probably the most important question I see here is this: Who is Jesus? I mean, who is he really? What? What is he? Right. I think that's the ultimate question. And if you're thinking about being a Christian or coming to church, I think that's the biggest question. Your biggest question, your biggest issue is not, well, how does the Bible reconcile with modern-day science, right? I think your biggest question is not simply, how do you reconcile the historicity of some of the events in the Bible or the plausibility of the supernatural? I mean, how is that possible? I think those are all important questions. but I think the biggest question here is this, the biggest conundrum. Who is this Jesus for real? Because the thing is, you've got to deal with that question. You can't deny that he, in fact, existed. You read, look up the historian books, you look up non Christian history, you look up Christian history. There's reports everywhere he existed. You've got to deal with his existence. You've got to make sense of the, the claims that he makes or the things that he says and the, and the things that he's reported to have done. Is he the Christ? Is he really the Messiah? Is he really the Savior? I think that's an important question. Because here's why. If you don't get this question right, then nothing else that God, Jesus, or the Bible says is going to make any sense if you don't get this part right. In fact, anything he says after this is going to sound to us impossible, incomprehensible, or just plain unfair. Who is he? That's the question that Jesus is asking. What is he? Who is he? And before you, if you've been going to church, before you say, I know the answer, I want you to pause a little bit. Put yourself in the other shoes and ask yourself generally: do you really think, do you really believe? Okay? It's an important question for everyone. In 2013, Bono, leader of the famous band, U2, was in an interview and responding to a question about his faith, right? And, and he was questioned about his faith, and he says this, quote, I think it's the defining question for a Christian. Who was Christ? And I don't think you're let off easily, he continues, by saying, oh, well, Jesus was just a great thinker or a great philosopher. Because actually, Bono says, he went around saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. So, either in my view, he was the Son of God, or he was, and the interviewer interrupts him and says, he was not. And Bono says, no, no. Either he was the Son of God, or he's nuts. He's nuts. Bono corrects him. He says, quote, forget rock and roll messianic complexes. This is like Charlie Manson type of delirium. And a later bit in the interview, a direct question was asked him, therefore, it follows that you believe he's divine? And Bono's answer was a clear response. He says, Yes. Who is Jesus Christ? Bono's not making this up. He actually probably got it from reading C.S. Lewis. In one of his famous books, um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I think we've seen the movie, we read the books. And in it, you have these children. Um, who are, you know, brothers and sisters, Lucy, Edmund, um, they have older sister and brother, Peter and Susan. And uh, Lucy and Edmund just come back from visiting Narnia, right? And uh, Peter and Susan are trying to figure out where they went, and Lucy keeps saying she went to this completely imaginary, it sounded like an imaginary place, a wonderful place. She went to Narnia, and uh, they were worried, right? Her, Her older sister and brother were worried because they thought maybe Lucy was mentally ill. What do you mean, you went to Narnia, right? And so they seek out a professor in the book who's in the house living there with them, and the professor, after listening to them, uh, hearing them and explain the situation and asking them some questions, this is how the professor responds in the book. He says, quote, logic, the professor said to himself. Why don't they teach logic at these schools? There are only three possibilities with Lucy. Either your sister is telling lies, she didn't really go to Narnia, or she's mad, she's crazy, he says, or she's telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies. It's obvious she's not mad. For the moment then, and unless there are any further evidence that turns up, we must assume she's telling the truth, end quote. This is later known, this is actually what Lewis writes into the book, but he also explains in his book, Mere Christianity. It's what we call the trilemma. And this is what Lewis is trying to show through the characters of Lucy and Edmund and and Peter and Susan. He says this, quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing, Lewis says, we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man is and was the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall to his feet and call him Lord. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left us open to that. He did not intend to. And it seems obvious to me that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may have been or seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. It's what we call the trilemma argument. Jesus, who is he? He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Lord. Jesus, who is he? He's either mad, or he's bad, or he's God. And to be honest, the modern mind doesn't like those choices. What the modern mind wants to say is this, who is Jesus? We can't deny he didn't exist, but we say this, he was a good person, right? He, he was a, a generous person. He was a very uh, good teacher, like Gandhi, or like the Dalai Lama, or maybe like Mohammed, right? We don't want to say he's mad, because we look at what he's done, and it doesn't sound crazy, but we can't say he's God. He's a good person. And the only problem with that is this, that you look at anywhere it talks about Jesus, whether in the Bible or outside, Jesus never leaves us that option. None of those other guys, Muhammad, Gandhi, Dalai Lama, ever claimed and said the things that Jesus did. He didn't, they never said things like, I'm the truth, I'm the way, I'm the life. No one can come to God except through me. That's crazy stuff. He's either mad or he's bad because he's a liar or he really is God. And so this is an important question. Who do you say I am? And Peter and the disciples, they confess, you are the Christ. And that's where it begins, right? That's where it begins, that's the confession. The second point here is there's a call in verse 34. He he never did this before. He never told them what it's going to take to follow him. And this call is really a a call to discipleship, okay? Uh, He tells them what it takes to follow me. And he invites, who does he invite? Not just the disciples, but the crowd, all those people listening to him, and he says this, if you want to be a disciple, if you want to be a Christian, really, if you want to follow me, three things you've got to do. Deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. Now, let me, let me go over those really quickly. Deny yourself, what does that mean? It means simply this. It's not about you. It's not what about you want. It's not just about your desires. To deny yourself means you've got to say no to you. Right? You want to be a Christian? You want to to follow me? You know, I've waited all this time to be patient. Now you want to follow me, but this is what I'm going to say it's going to take. You've got to deny yourself. You've got to say no to you. Then the second thing he says is take up the cross. Now, when he says take up the cross, he doesn't mean get a gold cross and wear it around your neck okay, right? The cross was, it was was literal. When he said take up the cross, they knew what he meant when they heard it in Jesus' time. It's like saying today, take the lethal injection, right? Or take the lethal electric chair. It means you're going to die. And in fact, many of these guys who followed Jesus, like we said last time, they did die. They died early. They died terribly because they followed and confessed. But, you know, thank God we don't live in a a country where we are persecuted this way. But when you look at Paul's letters, there's another kind of dying, right? That because Jesus died, Paul says, you must die to yourself in order to live to God. What does take up the cross mean for us today? It means you die to yourself. You've got to die to you. So the first thing you got to do, deny yourself. You've got to say no to you. The second thing, take up the cross. You've got to die to you, to your desires, to your you know, agendas, to your own purposes. You've got to die to you. And the last thing is, then follow me. Deny, take up the cross, and follow me. Now, the word follow here, what does that mean? It doesn't just mean physically tag along, right? The Greek word here, follow, is the word akalutheo, which we get the English word acolyte. And acolyte means what? disciple right the language here is a language of a servant to a master it's a language of imitation when you follow someone when you disciple with someone you begin to look like them you you imitate them your identity shaped by who you follow you disown yourself you disown your identity in a sense you give up yourself in order to follow him or her or whoever you follow So here's what Jesus says. You made this confession. Oh, Jesus, you are the Christ. Okay, this is what it takes to follow me. Number one, deny yourself. You've got to say no to you. Number two, die to yourself. You've got to die to you. Number three, give up yourself. Follow me. You've got to give up you. You see this? It's all the same thing. All three three things. It's all the same thing. Here's Jesus. He's telling everyone, this is what it's going to take to follow me. And I think as he explains them, deny yourself, die to yourself, right, give up yourself, you know, follow me. I think as he explains to them what it's going to take to follow him, at the same time, he's also telling us what the biggest obstacle to following Jesus really is. Your biggest obstacle into really following Jesus is not just about facts, and evidence. It's not just about the plausibility of what happened in the Bible. According to Jesus, your biggest obstacle is you. It's you. You know, we've got a lot of issues out there in the world, and we've got issues in our lives, in our relationships, in our circumstances with other people. They're real. They're, they're problems. But the Bible, to me, seems very clear. Your biggest hindrance to being a real follower of Jesus is genuinely and passionately being a follower of christ is you your biggest problem is you and unless you're willing to recognize that unless you really admit this you will never come to jesus just for him you will never follow jesus for simply who he says he is see you might go to jesus to help you with your finances You might go to Jesus or God to give you some wisdom and insight into navigating your tough time in life right now. You might pray to him to get what you think you need or want. But as long as it's always all about you, you'll never ever follow Jesus just for him. Here's how you know. If he doesn't answer your prayer, will you still thank him? If he doesn't provide the wisdom, the insight to help you get through this particular hardship in your life, will you still praise him? If he doesn't give you that job, that school, that that wife or husband, those wonderful kids, if he doesn't remove that sickness, that disease, will you still love him? And if that answer is a no, then my guess is you probably really weren't following Jesus. You were following you. If you say no, you don't want to follow him. You don't want to worship him. Because even though the Bible says we were created in his image, what you really want to follow and worship is a God made in your image. I remember uh, my parents immigrated to the U.S. in the 70s. And, um, you know, I was born in the States. But uh, in 72, and, you know, growing up, there were students. And so it was kind of tough. You You know, like most of our... Parents, we—they grew up poor. They were just making their way up, and and I got invited in this complex uh, to a friend's birthday party, and um, you know, I don't know. I guess they were richer than than our family was, but he bought a a gift for every guest that came to his birthday party, right? I mean, it was wrapped in aluminum foil, and he (laughs) gave it to me, and it was this big, and you know, when you're like, you know, five, six years old. any gift is, is amazing, and so I got this gift, and I unwrapped it, and it was a machine gun, right? And so, you know, it's like, you know, you're shooting a little gun, right? And I, I looked at the birthday boy, right? All these kids were there. The moms were there, and, and the birthday boy, actually, uh, my friend, there was a huge table, and he had a pile of gifts on his table, and they were bigger than my machine gun wrapped in aluminum foil. And, you know, I, as a kid, I'll admit, I was greedy, I was really greedy, like many kids are. I, I got tired of my little toy, and I wanted to see what he got. I wanted to have what he got. And so, what many kids do is this: I threw a tantrum. I threw a tantrum, and my mom was there, and I started throwing a tantrum. I'm on the ground. It's like I don't want this anymore. I want that. I want that. I want that. What's on that table? And you know how Korean parents are, they, they got this shame culture, and I'm you know, making a scene from all the other moms, and I look like this crazy kid, so she wants to yell at me, but she can't do it out there in front of public, so they give you the evil eye, you know, the little, you know, kind of like, you know, just get your act together, and I did not care. I wanted what that kid had. And then she finally, she pulls me to the back of the room, she slaps me on the butt, she looks at me straight in the eye, and she says to me in Korean, she says, Francis, this Is not your birthday party. This is not your party. And I think our biggest problem is as we follow Jesus Christ, and he keeps telling us, it's not about you, it's not about you, deny yourself, give up yourself, follow me, follow me just for me. I think what he's saying is this this is not your party. This life is not your party. Say no to you. Take up the cross. Die to you. Follow me. Give up you. You know what I think Jesus is saying here? He's basically saying this. Jesus is saying, I will not be used. I will not be used. And if you say, I will follow you, Jesus, I will obey if you make my career good, if you make my family healthy. I will only follow you if you make this situation better. And if you ever say that, then whatever is on the other side of that if, that's your goal. That's your real goal. And I think what Jesus is saying here is this. A disciple, if you're going to follow me, you make me the goal. Just for me, I'm the goal. That's what he's saying. I'm the goal. All these other things, yeah, they're important. And I I provide and you should ask. But ultimately, I'm the goal first the kingdom of God, then all these things will be added unto you. I'm the goal. And so the question, this question is so important. Who is Jesus? Because if you don't get this right, then nothing else that God says that Jesus says or the Bible says is going to make sense. In fact, it's going to sound impossible, incomprehensible, unfair, like deny yourself, take up the cross, follow me. Who does that? Who wants to live like this? It doesn't make any sense. If Jesus isn't who he says he is, then those requirements sound like nonsense. It's, it's ridiculous to live like this. It's over the top. But if he says, if he is who he says he is, then what he's asking for its reasonable. It's reasonable. It's appropriate. It makes sense. And more importantly, it must mean it's worth it. There's a confession. There's a call. Follow me. This is what it takes. And lastly, we see commitment, okay? There's a commitment here uh, from the disciples. Remember this. He's talking to a crowd of people, more than just 12. But it's only the disciples we see respond. In fact, I think if you're looking for conversions, conversions as a sign of success, Jesus is probably one of the worst missionaries in history, uh, he's calling out to the crowds. He tells them, this is what it's going to take to follow me. And we're told later on in Mark that most of those people listening to him walked away. Common sense, walked away. No, that, that's, that's crazy. That's, that's too radical. That's, that's just, I can't do that right now. I got no time. Uh, they walked away. But we know at least that the disciples didn't. And here's what I think. I think these 12 guys, they, they, they made a choice. They, they made a decision to actually follow Jesus Christ. Even after saying all that, at least try to be a disciple that he calls for. Now, if I were talking to a college group or a young singles group, this is the part of the sermon where I usually go off. And this is why you should follow Jesus. You need to be sold out for Jesus. You need to be sold out for God because everything else doesn't matter and only he matters. And therefore, you need to give up everything, go out there and be a Christian. And it works for young people because at their age, yeah, I'm going to go to missions. <laughs> weeks, in the Bahamas, no, I, you, know, it's a, you know, I'm going to do it, I'm going to, you know, and, and but, but today, when you, when you hear something like this, it sounds over the top, sold out, for you. Yeah, it sounds a little overly zealous, a little overly religious, you sound like a fanatic, and we don't like that today in our culture, why? Because highly religious people seem to do crazy and violent things today. Very religious people also seem very condemning, very self-righteous, very narrow and abusive. We don't like that. And so as a Christian, I want to be a Christian, I want to be a disciple, but the solution for us is this. Um, I don't drink, okay? I don't have a problem with drinking. I just can't take it. I have very poor tolerance, and I tried. I tried beer in college, and I almost died, right, literally, uh, I don't know why that's funny. Um, So I thought maybe I need to go to something cleaner. So I tried sake, right? And I didn't realize sake was actually stronger. Uh, And then, you know, I actually tried whiskey. I thought whiskey would be cool. And, you know, the first time I tried whiskey, it was Jack Daniels. I had no idea about what good whiskey is. I did Jack Daniels, I I ordered one. And I took a little sip. That thing burned my insides like no tomorrow, right? And, and, you know, there were some people there, and I didn't want to look like a, like a wimp, right? I can get rid of it, so I had to finish it. So I asked the bartender for water, and here was my recipe. One part whiskey, four parts water. Right? One part whiskey, four parts water, and then drink it, and it helps everything go down a little bit better, right? When we think about what it looks like to be a Christian, what it li- looks like to live like a Christian, we, we tend to think of a spectrum right, of people. And on the one end of the spectrum, those are the hypocrites. They say they're a Christian, that they say that they're following, but they really don't. I mean, they really don't believe. And, and we, we don't want to be like hypocrites. That's, that's just bad, right? We don't want to be like that. But on the other side of the spectrum of, of Christians who are supposedly living for Christians, man, on the other side, they're just so Christian, Christian you know WWJD bracelets uh, bumper stickers and and every word is like amen and hallelujah and praise the Lord and it's just like I don't know it's just so Christian and so we think then the solution is well we can't be hypocrites but I don't want to be like that overzealous Christian why can't we just stay in the middle moderation in all things you know one part Christian four parts water right make it go down a little smoother and it makes sense, and I think for most of us, maybe that's where we are. But every time I look at the Bible and Jesus says some of these crazy things, like Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his mother, father and mother, you can't follow me. Or like, you know, Matthew 6, when Jesus says, look, you can't have two masters. You're going to hate one or love the other. You're going to be devoted to one. You're going to despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Hate your family. Hate money. That's not Moderate. There's no way. And I know what some of you are thinking. Like, most of us, we should stay moderate, somewhere in the middle. And maybe a few of us could be those sold-out people because, after all, who are going to be the pastors and missionaries, right? It's those kind of people. Um, Here's the thing. When Jesus says, hate your mother or father, hate money, he's not literally saying, hate your family, hate money, right? Those are all both, in and of themselves, good things. He's not calling us to hate actively. What he's saying is this. I want you to follow me so fully, so comprehensively, so emotionally and enduringly that all other attachments look like hate by comparison. Don't come to me just because I'm relevant. Don't come to me just because I make your kids better or I make you a better person. Don't come to me just so you think I'm going to make you happy. Come to me because I am the true Lord. I am the true Lord. You see, there's an alternate definition for the word follow, and it goes like this, quote, To follow means to pursue with great diligence and desire. To follow means to pursue with great desire and diligence. I think these 12 guys made the choice in spite of the cost because they confessed who Jesus was, they believed who he was, and they began to believe at least, and they pursued Jesus because they believed he might be worth it. It wasn't just an intellectual ascent of the brain of some truth. It wasn't just this radically emotional feeling of the heart. It was both. They, they, they heard what Jesus said, they, they counted the cost, they weighed it, and in the end, they passionately made the decision to follow after him. Right? I've said this before being a Christian is not just making a decision, it's desiring the decision you made. Becoming of a disciple is not just about making a choice. It's also cherishing the choice you make. Living like a Christian is not just believing in truth. It also means you treasure the truth. And that's why Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field when a man found it covered in his joy, in his joy, he sells everything that he has to buy it. Deny yourself, say no to you. Why? So they could say yes to him. Joy. They believed it. Take up the cross. Die to yourself. Give up yourself. Why? In order to live to him. Joy. Right? Follow him. Give up yourself. Lose yourself. Why? In order to gain him. They didn't make the decision because they were overzealous religious fanatics. They were sold out for a cause. They actually ended up believing in who he was. They confessed who he was. And that made not only everything reasonable, but to them, they made it worthwhile. And they followed him. They pursued him with great desire and diligence, with joy. Now, let me kind of end end this sort of application. I, I this is hard, if this is what a disciple does and means. I, I, There's not a day that goes by where I don't think about me, okay? This is hard to live like this, to give myself up every day, to say no to me every day. You know, it's, it's very difficult. And here's what I want you to know, all right? I don't want to discourage you from being a disciple or a Christian. I just want to encourage you. You don't just become a disciple. You grow into it. You grow into it. You know, like the husband and wife. In the beginning of marriage, it's a real relationship. That's who you are. You confess to each other. But you grow as a husband. You grow as a wife. Parenting. You know, you're a parent. As soon as your know, wife is, is pregnant, you're a mom or you're a dad. But you grow also. You grow into being a parent, a good parent. Membership in the church. Oh, I want to be a member of their church, right? You have no idea what it's going what's to be like five years to, as a member of the church, right? But you grow in your membership to the church. And so it is with being a disciple. It's not instantaneous. It's progressive. It's developmental. And here's the thing. When you start to follow Jesus, when you try to do this, it's like that. You have no idea what it's going to be, what's going to happen in your life, and be a faithful Christian. But if self-denial is a big part of following Jesus, of, of becoming a disciple, this is how your growing is going to happen. Um, let me just end with this a little bit. Take some time here a little bit more. Uh, I don't know if you have Instagram or Facebook or whatever you guys use for social media. But you ever, you ever look at Instagram and Facebook and look at people posting their pictures and, and you feel like, man, he's living the good life or she's living the good life. And every picture they post, is it, like life is really great for them. It seems exciting. It, it, it seems different. It, it seems fruitful. It, they seem like successful. You know, hashtag winning, right? You ever see that? That's all we see on social media. Hardly anyone puts up their hashtag losing. And, and I get why good people get good things. And I, and I believe that hard work and faithfulness gets rewarded. But what I don't get, what I have a hard time with, is why sometimes it looks like bad people get the good things. Or why hard work and faithfulness doesn't seem to be rewarded. Go unrecognized. Sometimes it feels like when you're looking at these things, you ever feel this way? Everyone else seems to be thriving, but you're at a dead end. You ever feel that way? Dead end. The disciples confess, they followed Jesus. Let me ask you a question Did their life get better? Did they put on, you know, if they were here today, would they put on pictures on their Instagram, and say hashtag winning? In some ways, I think their life got worse. They got persecuted. Some of them went hungry and thirsty. They got ridiculed. Uh, Some of them got beaten, put into prison, tortured even. There were constant roadblocks in their life, constant dead ends in their life that they felt just because they followed Jesus, and they died early. Jesus seems to be saying this, I'm going to take you places, You just stick with me. Don't turn to the left or right. No matter what happens, just just don't give up. You just stick with me. And by the way, you're going to go through some nasty stuff before you get the good stuff. You're going to feel like you're losing before really and truly gaining. There's going to be some pain, temporary pain, before everlasting joy. And you might say, why? Why does it have to be like this? And the answer is, because that's how Jesus did it. We want to go from glory to glory. Jesus went from suffering to glory. We want to be winning and winning, but Jesus went from loss to complete loss. He lost his life. Death on a cross. And so if you're following Jesus, the reality is, if it requires self-denial, what do you think that's going to feel like? You go on a diet. You have to lose good food that you love to eat in order to gain, you know, good health. But it feels painful. And I think Jesus understood a little bit about denial. I think he knew how to say no to himself. I think he knew how to give up himself, give up his rights, become like one of us. I think he understood what it feels to to be at a dead end. Why? Because he went completely to a dead end. He went to the cross. You see, here's the thing. Jesus followed the cross into hell so that when you follow him, he can take you to heaven. Jesus followed the cross into destruction so that you follow him, he'll take you to greatness. He'll take you to wholeness. And what that means is this. In life, constantly, it could look like roadblock after roadblock, dead end after dead end, like you're always losing. And Jesus is saying to you today, don't turn around. Don't look left or right. Don't go back. Trust. Take the next step forward. Keep following. Because what may look like a dead end May actually be the beginning. What may look like a dead end may be an opportunity to grow. This is how you grow as a disciple. When you learn to die to yourself in order to gain Christ. You don't learn this in a Bible study. You don't you don't learn this in a sermon or a seminar. You learn this in life. This is how we learn to be disciples. And as we learn, we learn not just how to win, but we also learn how to lose in order that we may really win and gain Christ. There is no other way. Scottish author and pastor George MacDonald said this, quote, you will be dead as long as you refuse to die to yourself, end quote. And here's Jesus. I'm life. If you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up the cross, follow me. And so the question I'm going to end with today is simply this. Just as he asked the disciples, I think Jesus asks us the same. Whether you're a Christian or not, who do you say I am? Who do you really say I am? It's a question worth thinking about and figuring it out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace your patience, your mercy. Just like you are patient and gracious and merciful to uh, the early Christians and, and those disciples even, it took time to just ha- let them to get to know you, to, to, to see you, to understand you, so you are with us. There's no one here who is there, all there. There's no one here who has arrived at that place where we can proclaim that we have and are the good Christian the great disciple. There is nobody here. We are constantly work in progress, but we pray that you help us to see, not just in church and in a Bible study and in a sermon who you are, but you will help us to see who you are in our daily lives. Help us to know and work and believe that you are growing us in the midst of our difficulty and struggle, in the midst of loss and pain and suffering. Help us to know, Lord, that you can use these things not just to turn it around for our good, but to use them as agents of growth, to bringing us closer to you, to following you, to becoming real disciples for you. We pray that we confess your name. We ask the question, who you are. We pray you give us the heart and the mind to confess right. But, Lord, we also pray, give us the integrity to live and follow. Therefore, in your steps. And for that, Lord, we need patience, we need strength, we need mercy, we need wisdom, and we need your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.